0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, Wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their well-being and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships, and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of the podcast. I'm your host, Meg Durham, and today we're going to be exploring practical ways to manage our finite resources of energy and time. When I talk to educators, and I ask them, what are two things that you would love more of? It's always energy and time. Have you ever looked at someone and thought, I just don't know how she does it? I do not know how she manages to fit all of those things in. This is what people think when they meet today's guest, Dr. Bree Hearn. The various experiences she has managed to squeeze into her career are awe-inspiring. Bree is an experienced primary school teacher, curriculum and literacy leader, and education researcher and writer. Bree is a lecturer of language and literacy at the University of Melbourne, where she is also the course coordinator of the Master of Teaching Early Childhood and Primary. Bree facilitates language and literacy professional learning across multiple Australian states and systems, as well as in individual schools. Having recently completed a PhD, Bree is now using her doctoral findings about principles of effective professional learning in her business, Know Your Why. Through this work, she consults to both schools and organizations outside of education to translate the evidence about leadership, learning, and development. In this conversation, we discuss the importance of connecting with your why, how we can manage our time and energy, why trying to do it all is a recipe for burnout, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Brie Byrne. Brie, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks, Meg. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to join you. Today, we're going to be talking about your personal journey in education and what you've learned about yourself and how you manage your time and energy. What do you hope teachers will gain from listening to this conversation?
1: Sure. A couple of things. I I hope, firstly, they gain an opportunity to reconnect to the memory of why they were personally excited to become an educator in the first place. I hope they're motivated to look around at their colleagues in the teaching community and notice that while we share some values, and learning would be one of those, obviously, What you're inspired by as a teacher and what you're inspired to learn about and be a leader in and do better in might be very different to your colleague next door, your colleague down the corridor. And in fact, that's the way it should be. That's something that we should really honour. And I want educators through this conversation to be reminded that wanting more for themselves in terms of joy and engagement in the work that they do and then taking action towards gaining that more in whatever capacity that they can and whatever that means to them is actually a benefit to everybody. So it's a most benefit to our students, to our friends and our family, but also to ourselves.
0: Oh, what a beautiful invitation for listeners to really consider that. And also to acknowledge that working in schools, we all have different expertise. We have different areas that really, really excite us. And that's what makes school life so magic. It would actually be kind of boring if everybody was really focused on the one thing.
1: That's right. And I think it's it's really worth considering that some of those things are out there and everybody knows what they are. You know, you might have a particular job title within your workplace, for example, that says you're the leader of this or you're the coordinator of this or this is the learning area that you teach in. But there are a lot of educators walking around who do have a skill set or a particular interest in something that's not necessarily signposted and it's not necessarily on their badge or on their door or, you know, on their email signature. And in fact, that's the important stuff that I, I think every educator really needs to get to the bottom of. And sometimes leaders at schools don't do that work with educators to say, What lights you up? What can you teach the rest of us? What are you particularly interested in? So I think it's really important in a conversation like this, in the busyness of our jobs, to really offer an opportunity to say, no, this is why I got into it. This is the part of the job that lights me up. And in fact, when I'm a leader in that way, and when I kind of model my motivation towards that, then it buoys me along in terms of my own purpose and my own energy, but other people are feeding off that as well. Yeah, it can be so contagious
0: when you see someone really lit up in their classroom or if they've walked into the staff room and said, I just did this lesson and it worked really well or I experimented with something different. It brings me so much joy when I'm chatting in small groups of senior teachers and they're saying, I tried this differently. I have never done it like this before. This is wild. But to see their joy and excitement
1: in what they're doing. That's a lovely example of in the classroom, like, you know, from a pedagogical point of view, but sometimes it's even watching an educator in the way that they speak with a student or sometimes it's the way that you see, you might overhear a conversation that somebody has with a parent or you might be CC'd on an email and you just think, wow, that, the way they phrase that or the communication that they've used is something that I'm really going to look to them as a leader in. And so I think, yeah, just that memory of just how valuable the skill set of our individual educators are and that educators see that in themselves and remember that is sort of high importance to me in a conversation like this one. And also that it's an untapped resource.
0: Often when I'm at a conference, I look to the audience and think there is a wealth of knowledge in this room. Every single person in this audience could get up here and talk about something that lights them up. And I think that this is an area that we could do better in schools and as a system, sharing
1: the wisdom, insight and the experience that we've all gathered over time. Well, I agree. And some of the work I do is with people and you'd be the same, Meg, outside of the education fraternity. And I'm just fascinated by the way that people outside of education need to learn these sort of quote unquote soft skills that teachers have in spades and don't even realise it. There's these training opportunities for difficult conversations or for, you know, clarity in communication or, and it is literally the bread and butter of educators. So I think that's a really good point. Just actually highlighting what it is that we've already got in our pocket. So I'm really curious to know, when you look back on your career, how did you first approach teaching? Just as a typical type A eldest daughter wanting to be everything to everyone at all times. I remember someone told me this years and years later that or teaching in particular is one of those jobs unlike any other where you have the same job description on your first day as the person in the classroom next door who's been teaching for 25 years. And I remember being acutely aware of that. And so I remember reflecting probably a bit too deeply but I just had absolutely no idea what I was doing yet now that I bump into those kids who are adults you know that I taught in those early years come up to me in the street or I bump into them and they say the loveliest things and share the loveliest memories about those days and I'm sort of reminded about it just being about the relationships and them knowing how much I loved them because I genuinely did really love them and they were so precious in those early years. I've got a, a good friend who's a clinical psychologist and, and he tells me that his client load is overrepresented by teachers because of this kind of perfectionist tendency, you know, this sort of over-service which is a huge gift to the community and makes for efficient and productive and generous people but also this wanting to be everything to everyone in every learning area in every aspect of a child's development and well-being and you know their health and their family life and let alone all the bureaucratic things and the administrative things as well when i think back to myself as a young teacher loved every every second but tried to achieve too much too soon and you know the pressure i put on myself was just probably unsustainable But having said that, I was still a young teacher when I was asked to exit the classroom and become my school's uh, literacy and curriculum leader. And that was a huge opportunity for a whole range of reasons because obviously, you know, I made networks and engaged in professional learning opportunities that still serve me today, there's no question. And probably the ego of a young teacher, it was... Oh wow, I've been tapped on the shoulder to do this. And it almost felt like no wasn't an option. You know, it wasn't even something that I tossed up as a yes or a no. But I think on the other hand, I maybe wasn't mature enough and didn't have quite enough experience for such a heavy load. And it's something that in this era of permission to teach and teachers shortages, I talk a lot about that now with my pre-service teachers here at the university that just because a school wants you desperately, it could be 100% in the school's interest to fill that hole and maybe not in your interest. So just having the confidence to really interrogate what that would do in terms of your development and your learning opportunities and your very, very early steps into what will hopefully be you know, a really long and wonderful career which is which is what teaching should be so that was a hugely significant juncture in my life that taking on that huge leadership role so young because you know as i say it had huge benefits and also plenty drawbacks and i'm sure so
0: many listeners can resonate with that situation because it is so seductive to take the next step it feels exciting a new title, new responsibility, and then having that ability to think about with this responsibility comes new demands. And do I have the capacity to
1: manage these demands? Did you get to a point where you realised it wasn't sustainable for you? No spoilers. I actually ran myself into the ground and, you know, really experienced what would be typically, you know, these days called burnout. So I got really sick. At the school, there was a very garden variety benign virus going around parvo virus or slacked cheek as a lot of our our educators in our community would know very well and so all the kids that got sick got better but i just didn't so mine unfortunately morphed into into chronic fatigue syndrome i think i was at such a low ebb and i was using more emotional and cognitive resources than i had in reserve you know every single day and it was sort of that long-term very very operating as best I possibly could with yet with limited resources. So I got really sick. I spent six months in bed and not able to even lift my arms to wash my hair. And so after that really intense period, I was able to, through a, a combination of, of healing, you know, Western medicine, and a combination of intense rest and meditation. And I did neuro linguistic programming, which might be familiar to some people. I was able to return to work, so on a part-time basis at first. So for a while I didn't work on a Wednesday because that was my rest day, but then I was able to build up and build up and build up again. So fast forward to now, then I was able to have two children and begin working you know, as a lecturer and do further study and then eventually complete a doctorate. So it has a happy ending, but like all people who have had a similar story, and, and some of those people, unfortunately, at the moment, it's long COVID that seems to be looking like that sort of story. Hopefully, those people will recover in the same way as I did. Your nervous system is forever changed. So, you know, whilst it was a really unfortunate situation, it was a huge teacher for me.
0: And so what do you think going through this experience brought you?
1: Yeah, so obviously it was wholly unwelcome. you know chronic fatigue syndrome is not something that you know that I would I would do again. It left me with a really honest relationship with with time and with energy. those two things as you know the gifts that they are but the, the finite gifts that they are. So for me, time and energy are inextricably linked and people often say to me, but Brie, how have you done a doctorate while you work full time you know you've got a busy, Husband and your parenting. And the answer is for me, a laser sharp focus on time and energy every single day. So, time management is a completely separate kind of podcast ep- episode. But if I'd look at energy specifically, there's some well tread kind of keystone practices that, you know, I obviously try and adhere to. So, very predictable things in minimum of eight hours sleep a night if I can, exercise or movement most days of the week. Bonus if that's outside, you know, in nature and I get some vitamin D at the same time. You know, I eat mostly whole food and drinking lots of water seems to make a big difference to to my energy levels and my focus. I don't have a great response to alcohol or sugar, so I try and limit those. But what's less predictable, I suppose, is my language around rest. So I don't treat rest as a reward. I treat it as a right. And I think somebody that works and researches in linguistics and language, this is particularly interesting to me just how important it is to use words and really reflect on the weight that they hold. But I think for teachers in particular, for educators in particular, rest is the reward we get after a busy term or rest is the reward we get once we've finished the pile of work and then we can sit down if that even happens. And for me, that is a particularly unsustainable model. So it's about that margin for rest and planning for, I do quite a bit of work, uh, travel for work. So the day before I go is very quiet. The day after I go, I blank out my calendar completely. And that's a privilege I've got in this type of work. But the weekend, as busy as it is running you know kids around and doing all sorts of things, Rest is in there, sitting on the couch watching a movie with my girls under a blanket is in there, you know, reading a book on the bed for half an hour is absolutely a priority. And then also when I do feel a bit of a wobble, and again, there's no, language is important here, I don't like the word relapse, it's a wobble, I know the cues now. I have strange cues, like sensory type things, like I'll have a shower and it hurt; the water hurts on my scalp. Like there are weird things that I've become really intuitive to now where my energy is really kind of faltering. And so then, okay, more rest, more rest. In terms of energy, you know, from a physical point of view, but energy when it comes to work and life decisions, I think is the, the most interesting part of this conversation. I think the risk of burnout comes from using that cognitive and emotional energy in ways that aren't... Serving us and aren't productive for us. So, I don't know, Meg, if you know the Oliver Berkman book, 4,000 Weeks, if there are listeners who aren't familiar, his premise is basically 4,000 weeks is the average lifespan if you're lucky enough to live to eight. Now, that time is going to pass anyway. And so, he talks about this risk of ex- existential overwhelm, which he calls this endless to do list. If we are teachers, we're obsessed with Clearing the decks, answering the parent emails, you know, getting through the pile of marking. But his advice is to sort of sit in the discomfort that the decks will actually never be clear. If you do happen to get to that elusive inbox zero, it's for five minutes and then it fills up again. So really putting your cognitive energy there is at the greatest risk of burnout because what really is moving the needle and what is of greatest consequence to you as a person and and an educator and a professional is being put on the back burner and is an afterthought. It's not to say don't do the emails. It's not to say don't do the marking. It's just about thinking about the impact that you could have on any given day and what is it that's going to be of the biggest impact for you and for the kids that you teach or for your family And putting your cognitive and your emotional energy there and understanding that the other things, they'll they'll happen, but it doesn't have to be your primary focus for that day. Gosh,
0: you're illustrating to us so many important concepts and ideas. And I love how you shared your story of almost being disconnected to your body and really connected to what everybody else thinks, to transitioning into this being really connected to self and what do I want to do with my precious
1: resource of energy and time? It's cliche, but that like one wild or precious life. And for me, it's really important that when people say to me, Brie, how do you get it all done? You know, throw things around like Superwoman and Wonder Woman. It's not that. It's not that at all. I've loved when i learned the Latin um, word for decide is decidere, which actually translates to slice off. So what can you slice off so that what is left is of the greatest impact and the greatest consequence? So yes, I wrote a 100,000 word thesis, but it's because I was slicing off all the things that didn't matter. And that buoying me along, the motivation and the energy, and I was so inspired by the learning. And even when I was, it got difficult and my body was tired or my eyes were tired from being on the computer for too long my brain was just firing. And so it's just a really interesting reflection on we have this resource, we have this energy resource, how we choose to spend it actually is within our control if we really reflect on what motivates us and then what's going to be of the greatest good. Because getting that doctorate for me was important because obviously it served a purpose in terms of a really high value of mine in learning and and trustworthiness and credibility in learning for sure. I knew the impact that I could have after getting that doctor in front of my name. And that was really buoying me along. And then, you know, there were side things like modeling to my two little girls that when something's really important and you work really, really hard on it, you can have that. Just being able to make those decisions every day So that what you do spend your time and your energy on is of the greatest consequence for you because then that will have a knock-on effect to all of your loved ones. And you're also showing
0: us that when we are on the path, when we've sliced off the things that aren't as important to us, that it can be quite generative, that the energy you're putting in is also the energy you're getting out. As you put more in, you're getting that aliveness, you're getting that buzz, you're making progress where when we're doing all the things and not really enjoying any of the things, we're putting in lots of energy, but it can feel
1: really depleting. It's not regenerating. There's no question. And we had open day at the university a few weeks ago across Australia. There would be it's kind of open day season. And because I'm a course coordinator, so I, I was having lots of conversations with prospective students as they were coming through asking about the university Lots of them were sort of 16, 17 year old kids with their parents. And so their parents were part of the conversation. It was really lovely. But this one high school girl was there taking all the pamphlets and we were sort of talking about the university's offerings. And then her daughter walked off and this mother sort of whispered to me, I'd like to do some further study. And I said, That'd be wonderful. You know, in what do you think? And then she shared with me that she was. An assistant principal of a school, and that she'd like to maybe do a master's in education. But straight away, I said, "Why do why are you whispering?" And she said, "Oh, because today's not about me; it's about her." And I, you know, I said, oh, "Okay, well, we could go into a whole other conversation about that," but I said, "I'll park that." So I said, "Well, she's off; she's busy, you know, at the other things." So you know, tell me what what would you like to do and why. She just said, "Look." I think there's more that I could learn. I think that there's more that I could offer I feel like I'm getting a bit stale. I really want to brush up on some skills i I love reading theory and I love academic credentials, but I just don't have time while I'm so busy and then she went on to tell me about her really busy load at work, which was so typical of of you know so many leaders she's part time in the classroom, she's the school's assistant principal she's got this really big leadership and administrative burden on top of the teaching. Plus, she's a mother, you know, and so she's got the family constraints as well. But I said, why don't you just dip in? Why don't you just do one subject? Why don't you just do it part-time? Why don't you just see how it goes? I just thought that is so many, not just educators, that's so many people who are wanting more for themselves And understanding that if they got that more for themselves, that it would be of really big benefit, but it's just taking that step into being brave enough to say, I think I could do this and I think it would be difficult and it would be challenging, but I think it would be worth it. I don't even implore teachers to necessarily study, you know, and gain a credential on paper necessarily, but what could you be a leader in? You know, what could you learn more about? Where, Where could you dive deeper? Because then that will... For your motivation that will help you remember why you got into it in the first place and then that will make you a better workmate and a better kind of person to be around in general. Because as you're doing this hard, meaningful work, you're generating
0: this energy and as you speak Brie, it reminds me of when I was studying a long time ago with your lovely husband. I heard about Bree before I met Bree because David just spoke so highly of Bree, And I remember we had lectures and tutes each Thursday evening and each Thursday afternoon I was thinking, I can't do it. I'm not going tonight. This is too hard. And I would make myself drive into the university and as soon as we got through the door, I'm like, these are my people. This is so energising. We had this three-hour session. By the end, we're just bubbling with excitement I had learned from so many people in the room and then I got through Friday and it was really quite buoyant but every Thursday night I couldn't be bothered. I didn't want to do it and every Thursday once I finished, I am like, oh,
1: was the best. Can't wait to do it again. Or Friday morning when you opened the classroom door, how you saw things differently just as a, as a result of that two or three hour undertaking that, that you did the night before and that truly is when I'm lecturing my students here, that is something that I will always be at pains to demonstrate to them, just the gift of educators and how academic theory and knowing the why behind things and and researching in whatever way you've got time to do will always be worth your time because the kids will benefit from it first and foremost, but you will benefit because as you're saying, it will kind of buoy that energy along. Actually, I had a newborn at that time, Meg, I remember. So David was going out on a Thursday night and coming home and exactly that same story. But I think, wasn't there sort of some, because it was well-being masters, wasn't it? So it was sort of some conflict resolution type stuff. And I remember him sort of trialing out some strategies on me while I'm in the trenches with this newborn. And I remember thinking, just not now. Thursday, it's late.
0: I don't want to talk about this. But most Thursday evenings, we did counselling skills for educators
1: and it was so uplifting because we were learning skills that we could use the next day. That's the best part of any professional learning. So it's a real privilege when I do that sort of work with continuing education with teachers that I talk about professional learning being incremental. So it's exactly what you're saying. It's sort of something that's a quick win that you can go in and implement. But it's also transformational because as you're doing those quick wins, actually you're being transformed over The work that I'm sort of stepping out into a little bit on the side now when I'm working with outside of education, so with different, you know, corporates and corporations, I really am trying to model the worth of learning and wanting people to be motivated in and of the learning itself because it's it's sort of that value and the motivation that drives the work as opposed to doing it because somebody tells you. I'm reminded I was reading the results of the AITSL, you know, the big scale AITSL survey a few weeks ago, seven and a half thousand teachers participated. And the question around professional learning was, you know, to get your teacher registration in different states, you have to prove however many hours. The question around what motivates you to do professional learning, that bureaucratic requirement of getting your registration was something like 3% of that seven, seven and a half thousand people right at the top was wanting to be better for my students and wanting to professionally develop in my own work for meaning and purpose and all of these things that we're talking about now. That is so
0: striking and it's so beautiful because it taps into our shared value of learning and wanting to learn and wanting to get better. There is a part of us that really strives to continue to get better at our craft year after year after year. And so what do you do now? How do you manage your energy now with such a big workload, so much happening? What do you keep front and
1: centre day after day? So I suppose just that sort of big mission, wanting to be wherever I am, that's where I want to be. So if I'm at the university and I happen to be in that class teaching that thing, that's where I'm 100% committing And the relationships that I'm forming with those teachers and just that inherent modeling of the joy of this job and the rigor of this job, that's where I am. And then when I'm delivering professional learning with teachers, that's where I am that day. What have I sliced off? I've sliced off my inbox that day. I don't even turn Outlook on my computer. I've sliced off any range of things that I need to worry about tomorrow because that day... I need to go really deep on this idea. And I really feel that responsibility that if teachers have given up that day, they've set um, work for their kids to be doing, they've set the CRT back at school, they've made their way in, that they get the absolute best out of me that day and out of the work that I can provide. So I suppose it's about setting up those enabling conditions so that, you know, I'm well and that I'm rested and that I'm doing the work that I think will move the needle as best I possibly can. You know, the wheels fall off, kids get sick, and that's life, and that's fine. But yeah, for me, it's about what are those kind of core enabling conditions so that then I can go and do the work that I love, because doing the work that we love helps other people do the work that they love. Yeah, and what comes to mind for me is how do you remain
0: focused on that mission?
1: I suppose. You're buoyed by the results, whatever those results are. So I think it really is a chicken and the egg scenario so that when you see teachers sit up a little bit straighter or when you see them really in the trenches or when you walk past their table and they say, Brie, can you tell me a little bit more about that? When you see that you're pulling people into their mission and their work and also something else that is a real kind of it refocuses me is... I'm a little bit sick at the moment of the media bashing of teachers, and it's a real kind of bugbear of wine. I happen to work, obviously, in initial teacher education, which cops a big bashing at the same time as language and literacy. So teaching kids to read is kind of the other thing that comes up over and over and over again. And I just, this deep professionalization of our job, and then all of the media rhetoric around teacher shortage and teacher crisis, I just feel... A real deep stirring to position this job as worth it and that worth it in any way that you can manage. And so I'm somebody who isn't in a school full time teaching a group of kids. And so there's a certain privilege to that. But I also want to position that teaching can mean a whole range of things and that you can do it part time or that you can step out and do CRT and then come back in. But that it is so worth the time and it is the most kind of important and and joyous job to do. So it's a real, whether I'm working with in service teachers or whether I'm working with pre service teachers, it's a mission of mine that we really champion this profession again, because I feel like, you know, there would be people that would be chipping away at that. And it's just, it's just a huge danger. It's a huge danger to us in our community, but obviously for the children who are coming through. Yes. There is nothing more worthwhile than
0: educating. young people. And that's why we're doing the work that we do is to celebrate and honour the richness which is in our profession. And also, as we know the worth of education, to go to a new way of being where we know our own worth as well. It's not an either or. So if you could give big-hearted educators one skill,
1: what would it be? I would ask them to take a moment to reflect on their magic And what makes them valued as an educator? So what is it that got them into the profession in the first place, but what is their unique magic that somebody would say about them or that if somebody's not saying about them that we really should be saying about them? Chances are, if you enjoy an aspect of your job, you're going to be good at it. Often that's where the joy comes from because we can see that something comes easily to us and then we can see that there's some leadership there. So, therefore, you would both enjoy and benefits from deeper learning in that area. My research and my work show that when teachers are motivated intrinsically to want more and to do more, those benefits ripple across their lives and across their workplaces. So, it's a skill to be disciplined, to cash in on our finite energy tokens for the things that really matter, and to acknowledge that whilst there are parts of our jobs, so maybe the administrative things that, yes, must be done, they aren't of the greatest consequence. So- A gift I would give is just I would implore them to reflect on their magic, what's making them as an individual special in this whole kind of quilt of this profession. Brie, to wrap up this incredible
0: conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Sounds great. I
1: am inspired by? I'm inspired by experienced educators who show up with energy for their students and for delivering their content in differentiated ways every single day. I'm inspired by those experienced educators because they still have a bit left over to be learners themselves and then to be champions for their younger and less experienced colleagues. When life feels hard? I get my dog. I take her for a walk down by the creek near my house. And while I'm doing that, I call my sister and I hope she picks up for a a big restorative chat. (laughs) An underrated skill is? I think an underrated skill is putting deliberate effort in when we're interacting with someone to reflect on how we're making them feel through that interaction. And I'm looking forward to. Having just returned from a beautiful holiday in Fiji, I'm looking forward to making memories in the next one. So planning another holiday. Bree.
0: thank you so much for reminding us about our collective magic. And what could be possible for us if we tap into this energy and use it in generative ways? It is so powerful and more important than ever. And thank you for being guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: It was my pleasure, Meg. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for having me. I
0: thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Bree. And I love the concept of slicing away the things that don't matter. How powerful is that? So often in schools, we spend our time doing busy work, things that actually are not important. And what would your day look like if you sliced away a few tasks that actually are not moving the needle? They're not important. They may feel important, but when you stop to think about it, it might be worth slicing them away. To learn more about Brie and the wonderful work she is doing in the world, visit her website knowyourwhylearning.com. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a teacher that you know would benefit from listening. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs, or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com, Episode one hundred and three. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing, and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.